All right, thank you, Brandon. Good morning, everybody. How we doing? My name is Brad. I'm one of the teaching uh, pastors here. Hey, so we're in a series we're calling Messiah, and we're looking at the family tree of Jesus that's found in Matthew chapter 1. And one of the things we've said is that, you know, um, if the Messiah had a resume, one of the things that uh, Jews or the nation of Israel would have expected to be on that resume was he would have needed to be able to trace his lineage back to King David because of a promise that God had made to David that one day one of his descendants was going to reign and rule forever. So they would have expected to have seen that. But this week, we're going to actually look at something completely unexpected in the genealogy of Jesus, something you would never expect to see or find on anybody's resume. Um, There was scandal in Jesus' family tree. And what's so amazing is this isn't hidden, it isn't glossed over, and none of us would put any of that on a resume, but Matthew does. Why? Why would he do that? So there are four names in this family tree of Jesus that we're going to dive into today, and you're going to notice a couple of things about these four names. The first important thing you're going to notice is that all four of the people mentioned in here are women. And this is a really, really big deal because it was standard practice in this day uh, to trace a genealogy only through men. Women were almost always excluded from genealogies because they were wrongly seen as property. This was just the view of the day. But Matthew doesn't do that. He includes women, and what we're going to also see about the majority of these women, three out of four of them, have kind of a sordid past. There's a history there that we're going to look into, and uh, both of these things are a really big deal, and we're going to talk more about why they're a big deal in a few minutes. Now, by the way, I'm indebted to a pastor by the name of Levi Lusco for this series, for some of the content in this series. Uh, I listened to a couple of messages of his on Life Church. I thought they were helpful and informative. And so some of what I'll say today came from him. I'll share with you when we get there exactly what that is. Now, the first name we're going to dive into on this list. First, let's just do this. Let me just read through the genealogy, at least the first six verses and I'll point out the names we're going to dive into. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Aram, Aram fathered Amenadab, Amenadab fathered Nashon, uh, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Uh, Rahab, that's a name we're going to look at. Tamar is a name we're going to look at. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. There's a name we're going to look at. And Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. He doesn't even say her name. We're going to talk about the why of that in just a few minutes as well. Now, um, all right, so the first uh, woman's name here is Tamar or Tamar. Her story is actually found in Genesis chapter 38. So if you want to proof uh, text what I'm saying, you can do that. Now, Tamar's name, you need to know, is associated with a scandal, something like you might see on the Jerry Springer show. Probably it's not even fit 
for the Jerry Springer show. So Judah was Tamar's father-in-law, and he slept with her. Now, in his defense, his son was dead, and he thought he was sleeping with the prostitute. Does that help anybody? Yeah. Well, uh, and uh, he never knows that this is his daughter-in-law. He wakes up, she's gone the next morning, never knows that it is her. But talk about hypocrisy. So later, Judah uh, gets a message about his daughter-in-law, Tamar. He gets a message that she is pregnant. He doesn't know this, but she's pregnant with his child. That she's pregnant because she's been running around acting like a prostitute. That isn't true. The only man she slept with is him. But we're going to talk more about this. And so in his righteous indignation that she has soiled the family name, he is going to have her burned to death. Until she is able to prove that she was indeed pregnant with his child and he kind of has an oops you know didn't see that coming maybe we got to talk about this right it's kind of one of those things that happens right so that's Tamar and it's right there and then the next name on this list the next female is Rahab now we find Rahab's story in the book of Joshua primarily in chapters 2 and 6 and we know a couple of things about Rahab First, we know she was a prostitute. We also know that she lived in Jericho. She was not Jewish. Uh, She was from the city of Jericho, whom the nation of Israel has been called to capture and claim as their own. So what they do is they send two young men in to kind of spy things out, to do reconnaissance and find out, you know, what kind of weapons do they have? What kind of resources? How many soldiers do they have? How well, how fortified are they? How well defended are they? are they? And even though Rahab was from Jericho, she hides these two spies sent from Israel to do this reconnaissance. But the king uh, uh, or the, the, uh, the mayor of Jericho gets word that there may be spies in town and that they may be staying at her house. So he sends a messenger there and she lies three different times to this messenger about the whereabouts of this men in an, in an effort to uh, protect them and, and uh, you know, kind of be kind to them. And in return for this, uh, they promise to be kind to her family when they take the city of Jericho. So her sisters, her father, her mother, if they're still alive, her children, anybody that's her family will be taken care of, will be protected um, by Israel. And so um, when God keeps his promise and they do take the city of Jericho, they actually keep their promise to her. Um, And so it's so amazing because there, there's kind of a conversion story for, for Rahab. So she, she says, hey, look, you know, I, I don't really, I, I don't follow the gods. Like, I don't believe my gods have the power to protect us, but I believe in the power of your God. And so it's not a conversion story like we're used to thinking about it, but, but it's there nonetheless. And what's so amazing about Rahab 
is not only is her name mentioned in this, Judy, in this genealogy, but her name is also mentioned two other times in the New Testament. And this is just incredible to me. So she's mentioned in James chapter 2. Uh, many of you know, if you've ever read James, James is all about the relationship between faith and deeds. And so what James does is he spends a good amount of, of time arguing the point that if a man or woman has faith in Jesus, that that faith will always reveal itself in the way that we live, that your faith will always become recognizable to others by the things that you do and the things that you say. Um, so by your kindness, by your compassion, whatever, that if you're a follower of Jesus, eventually you're going you're gonna to have those things, right? And so as an example of this, he points to Abraham, who's like the patriarch of Judaism. Uh, and, and he points out that Abraham was willing to sacrifice, you know, his own son, Isaac, as a model of righteousness, as a model of faith. And right after Abraham, do you know the example he goes to? He goes to Rahab. He goes to this story. It's incredible. He goes on to say this in James 2.25. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And what is so extraordinary about this to me is that James is actually putting Rahab, a foreign woman, on level footing and level ground with Abraham, the father of Judaism, the father of the promise of God. He's putting them on level ground because of faith, faith that revealed itself in actions towards others. And then the other place that we find Rahab's name is actually in Hebrews chapter 11. A lot of folks call Hebrews chapter 11 the faith hall of fame. And so there Rahab's name is placed alongside other names like Moses and Noah and Enoch and uh, I mean some of the great you know heroes of, uh, of the Old Testament right are all right there and she's right there numbered among them. Just incredible. And then we come to Ruth. Now her story is a little bit different there's no scandal here. Uh, but so in, in the book of Ruth, there is a Jewish woman whose name is Naomi. That means sweet. And her life is going to be anything but sweet. In fact, at one time, she, she's, she's going to change her name from sweet to bitter. Uh, so uh, anyway, she's living in a foreign country now, called Moab. Now, Moab and Israel were bitter enemies. Uh, the Moabites were descendants of Sodom, so they were seen as horrible, wicked people by the Israelites. So there was this incredible racial kind of tension and animosity between the Moabites and the Israelites. But Naomi, even though she's living in Moab, is secure in Moab because she has a husband and she has two sons. So her future looks bright. But through a series of unfortunate events, her husband gets sick and he dies. But at least she has her sons. 
So she goes to her son. She tells them to make lives for themselves there in Moab to marry Moabite women because there were no Jewish women there for them to marry so that they could live and have a life and raise families and all that. All that. But, and so they do. They, they each take a foreign wife. And one day, both of those sons get sick and they both die on the same day. So here's a woman who's lost her husband. Now she's lost both of her sons, and this is a real person. Well, after the deaths of her two sons, Naomi pulls these two widows together, these two foreign women, these two Moabites, and she tells them she's going to go back to Israel. There's no future for her here. She's too old to remarry. She can't do that. But she urges them. She says, you're still young. You can still remarry and have children. And one of her daughter-in-laws, a young woman named Ruth, refused to go. In fact, she said some words that are sometimes quoted at weddings. Here's what she says to her mother-in-law, Naomi. She says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. So again, there's kind of a conversion story here, right? In fact, she invokes the name of Yahweh, their God. She says this, where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord, that's Yahweh, that's not her gods, that's not the Moabite gods, that's, that's Jehovah, that's Yahweh, that's the God. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates uh, you from me. So Ruth immigrates a Moabite, a foreign woman, into Israel. She knows she's going to be despised, she knows she's going to be rejected, she knows it's going to be difficult, and yet she goes anyway. And what's so fascinating to me is most immigrants, right, they immigrate to a country for a better life. But Ruth isn't doing that. Ruth is immigrating to Israel for a life she knows is going to be less than the life she could have had in Moab for the sake of her mother-in-law. This is so incredible to me. Well, here in Matthew, and so now all that Naomi had, she used to have a husband, she used to have two sons. Now all that Naomi had left of her family was this young Moabite widow. And so she was asking God this question, God, what can, what can you do with that? I mean, what are you going to do with that? Um, and uh, she's just, uh, so Naomi, so, but yet through Ruth, here's what's so incredible. Here in Matthew, we see, right, that through Ruth, God gives her a son named Obed, and Obed becomes the father of Jesse, and Jesse becomes the father of King David, who becomes the greatest king in the history of Israel, and from David will come Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, uh, and, and the Savior of the world. See, what, what happened was, see, there was this point where... Uh, so through Ruth, Naomi is included in this lineage of kings and the savior of the world. Yet, Naomi looks past Ruth all throughout the story. And she thinks, I have no name. I have no line. God has left me empty. That's what she says. God has forgotten me. 
Now, the reason for her blindness is this. Because Naomi thinks the way a lot of us think in this room. Naomi thinks she knows better than God how her life should go. And because she thinks she knows better than God how her life should go, she can't see the grace of Ruth. She can't see that God's greatest gift to her and the best thing in her life is this young Moabite widow. And the reality is some of us are here and we're in exactly the same place as Naomi. We have an agenda for our life and and our agenda doesn't match with God's agenda. And so we're saying things like, God has left me empty. God has abandoned me. God has forsaken me. Where is God, you know, in all this? And right underneath your nose could be your Ruth, your answer, the greatest avenue to blessing in your entire life. So Ruth is in the genealogy of Jesus Precisely because Ruth points us to the one who will come, the promised Messiah. Now listen, uh, so Ruth is not only in the genealogy in the family tree of Jesus, but she is also what theologians call a type of Jesus. In other words, there are eerie similarities in her life to the life of Jesus. And I just want to kind of walk you through this. So when Ruth looked at Naomi, she said to herself, if I keep my life, Naomi loses hers. She's going to go back to Israel. She's going to die destitute, uh, poverty stricken, and a widow. So I'm going to give my life away for her so that Naomi can get a life. The only way that Ruth can save Naomi is to become like her, to go with her. So she says this, she says, I will take her poverty on myself. I will take her marginality on myself. I will become poor. I will become rejected. I will become hated so that through my poverty, Naomi might become rich. And that's what happened. Ruth left her father's house. She left her own country. She came down. She became an outsider. She became a suffering servant. She became someone who was indeed rejected. She became someone who was despised. She takes on someone else's poverty so that through her poverty they might become rich. Does that remind you of anybody that you know? Jesus left his father's throne above. He emptied himself. He died for us, left the ultimate riches to take on ultimate poverty so that through his poverty, you and I might become rich. And whereas Ruth clung to Naomi at the risk of her life, Jesus clung to a cross for you and I at the cost of his life. Ruth says to Naomi, I won't let anything but death separate you from me. But Jesus says to you and I, I won't even let death separate you from me. And one other thing about Ruth that I think is so amazing and so instructive for us. You compare it to any other book in the Bible and you're going to see something that's really different in that book. There is nothing, there's not one miracle in the book of Ruth. Not one. 
There are no big fish. There are no burning bushes. There are no dreams. There are no voices. There are no revelations. There are no explicit, overt interventions from God. There are no dramatic answers to prayer. You just see a group of people trying to live and trying to survive, just trying to get by. And they see nothing but mundane times and hard times. And so they make hard decisions about where to live and what to eat and, you know, how to conduct themselves just like you and I do. But when you and I read that story, we are aware of something that they are not. That God, even in the midst of the ordinary, even in the midst of the mundane, God is still powerfully at work in their lives, behind the scenes, making things happen. Not in a way that's overt, not in a way that's showy or a showstopper. He's just still putting the pieces where he wants them to be. And so one of the messages of this amazing book is that we serve a God who works powerfully in the midst of the mundane and the ordinary. Your mundane and your ordinary. He works powerfully in that. Even in times where you think he's left you empty, where you think he's abandoned you and deserted you, nothing could be further from the truth. It was Ruth's story, it's your story, and it's my story. And then the last character that we're going to look at here, and it's so fascinating to me, he doesn't even say her name. Now, if you've studied David, you can probably tell me who he's talking about here. When he mentions Uriah's wife, who's he talking about? Anybody tell me? It's not a trick question. Yeah, yeah, Bathsheba. Uh, doesn't even say her name. This is a big deal because right here in the middle of the genealogy of Jesus, there is a reminder, blatant reminder of King David's sin. He didn't sleep with a woman by the name of Bathsheba. He slept with Uriah's wife. Now, Uriah was one of David's mighty men. That means that Uriah was sworn to protect David. If they were out in the middle of the desert and David said, I want to die at Coke. Okay, Uriah was sworn to ride 40 days through the desert one way and back to bring David a diet Coke. This is how devoted the, these mighty men were to David. And he was a general in David's army. And so one day, while Uriah is away at war, by the way, a war that David should have been leading the charge on and fighting, but instead of being away at war, he was at home, he was in his palace, he walks out on his terrace, his roof is a lot higher than everybody else's in the city because he's the king and it's the palace, right? And so he looks down and... and and as was the custom, he sees a woman bathing. It happens to be his general, one of his mighty men, his wife. And he finds her beautiful and he decides on a whim he's going to summon her and he sleeps with her while Uriah is away defending his country and his opportunity to be king. Swell, right? Well... The guilt of this is so overwhelming for David that he decides to send Uriah. It's like mission impossible. 
you know, and uh, so he, he sends Uriah out on a mission. He knows Uriah can't survive. He knows he's not going to survive. And so sure enough, he sends Uriah on this message. He is killed in battle. And then David is free to marry Bathsheba and uh, make her his wife. Isn't that a wholesome story? It's right there in your Bible. Now, the reason that all of this is such a big deal is because even the family tree of Jesus shows us the need for the redemption and the forgiveness of Jesus. It points to the truth that the Messiah comes not just for Israel, but for everybody, for anybody. He comes for outcasts and murderers and adulterers and foreigners and men and women and liars and cheats and spies. And this means that God's best gift to you and I didn't come under a tree. It came on it, friends. It came on that tree. Because he clung to that tree with his very life. See, Matthew includes these four foreign women in the story of Jesus to show that Jesus' mission was going to include all people, no matter their gender, no matter their race, no matter their background or their heritage, no matter their hurts, their habits, or their hang-ups. Now, I want to talk for a moment about why redemption and forgiveness of sin is such a powerfully big deal and why it's the absolute biggest need in your life and mine. So a lot of times when people talk about sin, uh, they point out, rightfully so, that the word sin is hamartia in the Greek, and it's an archery term. And so, uh, you know, it's used, so, so you envision, you know, you shoot an arrow at a target, and it misses the bullseye, and so the, dif- the distance from the center to, the, to where the arrow landed is the sin, the hamartia. It falls short of the ideal, short of the perfection. And so a lot of us, when we hear that analogy and we think about archery, we think, okay, it's like me shooting an arrow into a bale of hay, and I miss. So what's the big deal? Well, it's not like that at all. So eight-year-old Ariana Sheenberg was playing in her backyard when she was struck in the back by an arrow. So a neighbor, they found out later, was trying to shoot a squirrel. The neighbor missed and penetrated uh, her lung, her spleen, her stomach, and her liver. Now fortunately for Ariana, she survived, but she bears the scars all the scars of that miss, of the fact that her neighbor missed the mark, right? Now, when you look at the genealogy of Jesus, see, when David sinned, he didn't just sin against God, did he? He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned sinned against anybody that was associated with that. Lots of people got hurt in that story. And that's what sin does. The Bible calls sin lawlessness. It calls sin destructive. So it isn't that when we, when we shoot an arrow, we shoot it harmlessly into a bale of hay. What happens in sin is we shoot an arrow, we shoot lots of arrows, and we shoot them into a crowd of people. 
And those people, every single one of them, they bear the scars of that. Listen, if you're here and you bear emotional scars, do you know what those are? Those are called the scars of sin. Someone else's sin that negatively impacted you. But the reality is, every one of us missed the mark, not in a harmless kind of way, but in a way where every one of us in this room have shot arrows into a crowd of people. Every single one of us. And every single one of us knows what it's like to be in that crowd of people and be shot or wounded by someone else's arrow, don't you? This is what Jesus came to rescue us from, friends. This is why it is the most important thing about you, what Jesus has done for you. It's absolutely vital. Now, uh, one of the prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah that is relevant here is Micah 5.2. I wouldn't have gone here but this is where Levi Lusco was so helpful for me. And so I'm, this is his insight, not mine. But I'm going to steal it and share it with you because it's helpful. So look at this prophecy about the Messiah. He says, Bethlehem, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. Now, the CSB, right, uses the word antiquity, but other versions use words like, he'll come from a line of distinction, or he'll come from a line of distinguished uh, people, uh, a line of antiquity. But when we read through this genealogy, we don't see a line of distinction at all, do we? We don't see a line of distinguished people at all. Well, if you're looking for distinction on his legal father's side, you won't find it. But friends, you should see the distinction and the antiquity on his biological father's side. That's the line of antiquity and that's the line of distinction. He is the, as Daniel says, the ancient one, the ancient of days. And he's always been. In fact, in Daniel 7, 9, look at what Daniel says about um, God. He says, as I kept watching, thrones were set in place. So he's, what he's talking about here is a, a coming kingdom. Thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. So the Ancient of Days, this distinguished one, this from the line of antiquity is going to reign and rule. He's going to sit on a throne. And then he goes on to say this, his clothing was white like snow. So he's talking about his purity. He's going to be completely pure. And the hair of his head was like the whitest wool. He's going to be incredibly wise. He's going to rule with a wisdom that has never been seen before or since. And then he says, his throne was flaming fire. Fire represents two things. It represents, first of all, purification. So he's, this, coming, this coming, uh, coming one is going to purify people, and he's going to do it with power. And he goes on to say this, its wheels were blazing fire. He, so the idea here is like a furnace of fire, like incredible power, incredible awe he's going to bring. That's our Jesus, friends. Here's how John described him. He said this, in the beginning 
was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we know who the Word is because a little later in verse 14, he says, and the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So he's talking about Jesus, and he says, we, we, we saw his glory. We saw him suffer. We saw him bleed. We saw him die. We saw him resurrected to new life. We were eyewitnesses of that. So we know he's talking about Jesus. And then look what he says in verse 2. All things were created through him. This is so cool because here's what this means. So way back in Genesis 1 when God is doing creation, he uses the plural in reference to himself. Let us make man in our image. Let us do this. Let us do that. And so some scholars think, oh no, that's just Hebrew stylistic uh, thought. But, but I would argue, no, that's a reference to the Trinity. That's a reference to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us. Jesus was there. He was at creation. That's what John is saying. And then he goes on to say this. In him was life. Life. In other words, listen, if sin brings death and destruction, if sin really is shooting arrows into a, a room full of people or a street filled with people, then Jesus is just the opposite. He came to bring life and restoration and reconciliation and healing from sin. He came to do exactly the opposite. It's so beautiful. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. In other words, the reason Jesus needed to come into this world is because it was dark, because it was hopeless, because it was without hope. He came to bring a dark world light, and he is the light of that world. So incredible. And then he says, these powerful words. The, the word became flesh. He dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father. And I love this phrase, filled with grace and truth. We struggle with both of these things. We struggle not only to tell the truth, but to be completely truthful. And then oftentimes we want to share our version of truth at the expense of grace. We want to assault somebody with what we think the truth is and oust grace, right? Isn't it true that all of us struggle with these two things? But not our Jesus. He was the perfect embodiment. It's not, this isn't saying that Jesus was like the perfect balance between grace and truth. This is, if that's what you think, you're missing the mark. No, it's saying that Jesus was full-on grace all the time and full-on truth all the time. We can't do that, but our Savior can, and He does, and I'm so glad He does. My life is so much better and richer because He is in it, right? So this past year, my wife Jackie found out about several siblings that she didn't know that she had. There were some skeletons in her family tree, her biological father, who she never knew, turns out was a habitual adulterer. And when he died about a year and a half ago, all this came to light. And it was very, very painful. I mean, it was very hard, very awkward, very difficult because he had four sons by his wife and then he had two children by this woman over here and two more children by this woman over here. And, you know, I mean, it just was spread all over. And, and when he died, all this stuff just came out of the closet. All these siblings found out 
about one another and they were shocked. It, I mean, it was painful, right? It was painful for these sons that loved their mom and their dad, but then had to grapple with what their dad, you know, had done. And, but here's the thing about these brothers, these four brothers, they're all followers of Jesus. And they reached out purposefully and intentionally to every other sibling and they said, listen, we are determined to allow God to bring restoration and healing where the enemy would want to bring just bitterness and resentment. And so fast forward 18 months, Jackie and I have built an incredible relationship with one of these brothers that she didn't even know she had until a year and a half ago and his wife. And they have become dear to us. And I can't, at this point, I couldn't imagine our life without them. And God did that. So I don't know what skeletons you have in your family tree. I don't know what skeletons you have in your own closet. But I know this, God can take those skeletons and he can, he can bring great good out of that. This is one of the lessons of the genealogy of Jesus. If God can bring good skeletons out of his own family... You know, he can bring good out of the skeletons in your closet or in your family's closet. So one of my favorite authors is a guy by the name of Philip Yancey. I've read almost everything he's written. Uh, and Philip just wrote a book. His last book is an autobiography. It's an autobiography of his own life. And so he talks about growing up in a very, very, very strict, legalistic, fundamentalist church in the South. So it was racist, right? Black people weren't allowed. You know, it was just that flavor, that ilk, right? And not only that, but he was also raised in a dysfunctional home by an angry and abusive mother who led Bible studies at church and then would come home and berate her sons and whip them with belts. I mean, just, you know, not, not just to punish, but to, to, to belittle, to embarrass, to abuse. And so he writes about, okay, how did, I, how did I keep my love for Jesus and my love for the church having grown up in a home like that one and in a church like the church I grew up in, and here's what he writes. He says, yet from the Bible, that's the key, I am learning about a God who has a soft spot for rebels, who empowers such people as the adulterer David, the cheater Jacob, the whiner Jeremiah, the traitor Peter, and the human rights abuser Saul of Tarsus. I read about a God whose son makes prodigals the heroes of his stories. And then he asks the question that I think we all ask at one time or another. Could that God find a place for someone like me? Well, the genealogy of Jesus says yes. It says yes to Philip Yancey. It says yes to you. And it says yes to me. And here's how the New Testament puts it. It's 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. I love this. For Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, 
For Christ also suffered for sins, arrows shot into crowds of people. The righteous, that's him, he did nothing wrong, and yet he died the death that every one of us deserved. The righteous for the unrighteous, that's your name's there, friend, my name is there. That's you, that's me, that's us. That he might bring you, bring us to God. Jesus came to bring near to God what used to live far from God. Jesus does that. That's why this is so incredibly important. And then we're told this, he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And I love this because in the Christmas story, right, it's the Spirit of God that overshadows Mary resulting in the birth of Jesus. And here we see that even in his death, the Spirit is working, not just in his birth, but in his death. He's dead in the flesh, but the Spirit does what? Brings him to life, resurrects him from the dead. Uh, I just think there's a poetry in that. Christ became our substitution. Now, just one last takeaway, and then we're going to talk about how we're going to take communion together. But What you see in the story of Jesus, and particularly in the story of Ruth, is you see people that are willing to be less so that other people can be more. Friends, that's the call of Christianity. That's the call for all of us. Anyone that would walk in the footsteps of Jesus. You look for ways to be less so that other people can be more. So how are you doing that? I would just challenge you this week, make that your prayer. God, how do you want me to become less so that someone else can become more? And you're going to be amazed at what God will do, may do, as you begin to pray that prayer on a regular basis. Some of us just need to learn to be less Uh, you know, for, so that our husbands can be more or our wives can be more. I mean, maybe it even needs to just start, you know, in our homes. But that's the call. That's the, that's the goal. That's the end game. It's right there. Jesus says, hey, that's what I did for you. I want you to go out and I want you to do that for others. So we're going to remember that together. One of the things I love that we do is uh, once a month here, we, we take communion together. You may have noticed we have it set up today. We have two tables here at the front. We have two in the back. And in a moment, I'm going to ask you to come. I'm going to ask you to take um, a, a piece of bread, and I'm going to ask you to take uh, the cup, and I'm going to ask you to go back down the side aisles or back down the center aisle, take a seat, and hold on to that bread and that cup. And then what I'm going to do is... Um, We're going to pause worship. I'm going to come back up and I'm going to prompt us. And we're all going to take communion together. Friends, there's power in together. So I'm going to prompt you. And Jesus says, hey, when you do that, when you eat that bread, you're remembering my body offered up for you. When you drink from the cup, you're remembering my blood shed for you. It's so important that we do that well and that we do that together. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to come and uh, grab the elements and then go back to our seat. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. 
that uh, while we were shooting arrows at one another and into one another, sometimes even by accident, that you came. You came to bring healing. You came to bring restoration. You came to bring life. You are not just a light. You are our light. And we are most grateful for you. So thank you, Lord Jesus that uh, so many of us in this room have the privilege to bear your name, to be followers and children of the way. For you yourself have said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we thank you for that unspeakable gift. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.